You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. You guys are live today. That's awesome. I love seeing people get baptized. By the end of next service, if I'm not mistaken, we'll have 11 people who've given their lives to Christ and united with them in baptism at some point in the new year already. Isn't that great? Yeah. It's exciting. All right, so if you're visiting with us today, if you're watching online or listening somewhere down the road from today, uh, we just want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here with us. Let me bring you up to speed real quick. So last year, I was talking to God, and I said, God, I need to remember how big you are. And uh, out of that, I just started deciding that I was going to do a series based off the bigness of God, and that led me to look at these theophany texts. The theophany is a text in the Bible where God shows up in the Bible and kind of reveals himself a little bit in the Bible. So we've looked at, and this is important because the three stories we've looked at so far are all relevant in today's text. We've looked at Exodus 19, Isaiah chapter 6, and Ezekiel chapter 1. Three of the most confusing, mind-boggling texts that there are. So if you are here with us today and you're new, or if you've only been here for one of those, some of the things that we look at today are going to draw directly from those texts, and that's okay. You're not going to be missing out, but you might get more out of this if you actually go back and listen to those messages. So where I want to start with us today, and this is relevant, where I want to start today is with this question. Do you know anyone with control issues? Why is everybody laughing? It's like everybody in the room knows somebody. You know, you, you might have control issues if when you go to the movie theater, you sit on the end of the row, even if it means sitting apart from your family. Anybody know anybody like that? You might have control issues if you always have to be the person who drives a car, even if you have a broken foot. Some of you are like, I know that guy. Some of you are like, how does he know that you're that person? You're sitting next to them. You might have control issues if you hide junk food in your house so that you don't have to share it with other people. (laughs) Some of y'all just got busted, right? How does he know? You might have control issues. If when you get dressed in the morning, you have to iron your clothes, even though you ironed them the night before. Oh, some of you are like, what? Does anybody actually do that? Yes. I could keep going, right? Let me just give one more since it probably busts me the most. You might have control issues if you always have to tell the last illustration in a conversation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you're talking with somebody and you always have to throw out, oh, 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 and then this one time. Oh, and then this one time. Why do you think my sermons go an hour most days? I have control issues. If you have control issues, I just want to welcome you to Kingsway Christian Church. You will feel very at home here. This is a room full of people with control issues. Now, here's the thing. When my wife and I decided to adopt, we took these classes. They're like a home study. You have to learn all this stuff, study all this stuff. They come check out your home, make sure it's safe. In the process of doing all this stuff, what we learned was many kids who've been through foster care and adoption have control issues. And control can actually play itself out in four major categories. There may be others, but these are just kind of four major categories. And I don't have time to unpack these. I've taught on them before, and I've taught them at the men's retreat and last year. And every time I do this, somebody goes, oh yeah, it's like a light bulb goes off. But the four Quick, real quick, controlling behaviors. There's aggressive control, 
This is where I always have to be in control of situations. It could look like yelling or cussing or hitting, but it can also look like I take matters into my own hands to make sure that the outcomes that I believe need done get done. Doesn't matter if I gave the responsibility to somebody else, I'm gonna control it because I'm the only one at the end of the day that I trust. It can look like attention-seeking control. It can look like, and attention-seeking control would be like, uh, I have to be the center of attention in order to feel safe in the world. And I don't trust that God's gonna meet my needs, so therefore I often go and meet my own needs because I don't trust God to come through for me. So what happens in attention-seeking control? is that I will, uh, I can get, say, uh, addicted to a substance. Many people who struggle with online images or videos often are doing this. Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. It's because I need this constant fill of attention and approval coming into my life in some form or fashion. Perhaps you become a pastor and lead a large church because you really love the way that it feels to get that attention-seeking issue met. Just theoretically. I don't know anybody like that, theoretically. Then there's withdrawn control. Withdrawn control is when uh, things are out of control in my life, so I pull away in order to get the situation back into a place where I feel safe again. And uh, one of my mentors, a guy named Rick Sudsbury, um, he told me once that he was working with a lady who was having it out with her teenage son and locked herself in the bathroom, and uh, he's on the outside of the door, pounding on the door, going, I know you're in there, let me in. And she was withdrawing to pull away to try to get control back into the relationship. But we see this all the time with couples who fight and then one of them walks away or stomps away or gets to the car, drives away or leaves or whatever it is because they don't feel like they're in control anymore. They're gonna get back control no matter what it takes. And then lastly, but not leastly, perfectionistic control. And this is where I have to have things a certain way all the time, maybe even OCD behaviors. I have to act a certain way or have things a certain way. Everything has to have a place. Everything has to look a certain way. People obsessively work out or whatever it might be. Everything has to be perfect the way I define perfect in order for me to feel safe in the world. Now, that I've blown all your minds, ready? Which one is the person sitting next to you? Go ahead and tell them. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. Why did I go through all of those? Because all four of those things have one root cause. Fear. And I don't know if you know this or not, but everybody in here struggles with fear. Even the tough guy or the tough girl in your life that you think is afraid of nothing has fear. How do I know? Because that's what happens in a world where sin reigns. And that's the world we live in. Fear is a natural byproduct of sin. Sin creates disunity, distrust, brokenness, pain. And we're gonna look at today as a text that deals directly with this issue. And the reason that it deals directly with this issue is because the people have experienced and are going to experience tremendous pain. Tremendous pain which has created great fear. Now, the book of Revelation, the book we're gonna look at briefly today, depending on when you date it, depends on what kind of suffering that people either have experienced or will experience. Some people date it just before 70 AD, and some people date it just after 70 AD, and it's a little bit relevant, but it doesn't necessarily change anything for our purpose today. Just to give you an idea, in the early 60s, a gentleman, a gentleman would be a stretch, a guy named Nero was leading Rome. And Nero, he was a sick dude. You can look it up in history books. He used to throw these parties that would turn into massive orgies, and he would put on animal skins and get down on all fours and act like a wild animal, biting at people, people's private parts. He's just a weird dude. But he was Nero. 
the emperor of Rome. What are you going to do? Like, what do you do to that guy? He would, though, take Christians, and at some point it became really convenient to blame Christians for some of the disruptions going on in Rome. They were an easy, easy figure to blame. Politically, it made sense. So he would have Christians killed in various terrible ways, one of which I just recently read about. I'd kind of heard about it, but I heard some more details. He would take these thick wax, uh, I don't know what to call it, like wrappings, and he would wrap them around Christians and light them as candles for his parties. So if you date the book before 70 AD, these are the kind of things that are going on when the book was written. If you date the book after 70 AD, these things have just happened in the recent past, and some other people, Domitian or Flavius, were doing similar, different kinds of similar persecutions upon the Christians after the fact. Now, the reason why 70 AD is relevant, before we get into today, is because in 70 AD, Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. In 70 AD, they laid siege and literally tore it down. You can see the Temple Mount still exists in Jerusalem over in Israel today. This is where we get the Wailing Wall where Jewish people go and write out prayers and put them in the cracks of the Temple Mount. And on top of that mount now, we see there is a mosque. <clears throat> now, the reason I say all this, it's set up for what we're going to read today. Because in this world, while there's fear, in this world, while there's pain, in this world, while there's suffering, there's one really big important thing that we all need to know. Revelation chapter four, you ready? We're gonna start in verse two. Verse one is where we'll close. Look at verse two. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Say it with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Over and over and over and over. Now, let's talk about what we just read for a minute and realize real quick, people write entire books on this chapter 
Everything in this chapter is relevant to everything that came in the three chapters previously, which we didn't look at and we aren't gonna have time to. Everything in this chapter is relevant for the entire rest of the book from chapter five all the way to the end and we won't have time to look at all of that. So what we're gonna do is take a quick look at a glimpse of something happening and the relevance of that thing happening and I will try to drop some nuggets along the way for you but remember what we wanna do is we wanna look at God the Father, see if we could grasp any wisdom and then understand how God the Father points us to Jesus the Son. So let's come back up and I will go very quickly and I may lose some of you because we are well into the deep weeds of the book of Revelation. Let me just say, I am convinced there is no book more beautifully written in the entire history of the world than the book of Revelation. The more I study it and the more I read it, even from different angles and people who disagree with me about the best way to interpret it, the more I see the beauty and the intricacy and the depth of this book. So there's a reason why we're told early in the book of Revelation, you will be blessed for reading this prophecy aloud. This is such a beautiful book, and I will try to make even just little glimpses of it. So if you will just strap on your head knowledge for a minute, let's travel through these verses very, very quickly and try to give you some nuggets. Ready? Look at verse two yet again. At once, John writes, this is John, the apostle John. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The word throne in this chapter and in the next chapter, which we will look at, is repeated, I believe, I didn't write this down, I believe it's 17 times. Do you think it's an important word? Do you think it's an important concept? Because there is one seated on the throne that in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your confusion, fusion, and in the midst of you desiring to bring everything back under control where you feel safe again, John is trying to let us know someone is already seated on the throne. He's higher than the highest ruler on earth. He's higher than Nero or Domitian or whoever it is that's emperor in Rome at the time of the writing. He's higher than everything. He's higher than your spouse. He's higher than your boss. He's higher than the president. He's higher than the highest. And that's huge because this is critical for understanding what's happening in this chapter as it relates to everything else. The book of Revelation reveals to us what happens for those who are in God and what happens for those who are outside of God. Towards the end of Revelation, it's very, very painful. Actually, throughout the book, it's very, very painful. Throughout the book, we learn lessons like even though bad things are happening like war and disease and famine and greed and all kinds of horses of apocalypse, all kinds of bad things are happening, God is still seated on his throne. It takes us back to last year when I did a series on suffering and God says, <coughs> excuse me, to the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous will live by their faith. Even in the midst of terrible things happening, the righteous will hang on to their faith. And what John is trying to do is anchor these seven churches who represent every believer in the history of the world and anchor them in this idea that even in the midst of suffering, God is still on the throne. Again, if I had more time, I could say a lot more. But I think we got enough from that. Let's go to verse three. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Two important things. Jasper and ruby are precious stones. The concept of precious stones is relevant throughout the book of Revelation and even in the book of Peter. The whole idea is these is beautiful stones. If you see the old temple, you would see these stones. In fact, go look at the Wailing Wall today. You can Google image that bad boy and you'll see precious stones. 
Peter tells us that God is building out of us a house of precious stones. But something even more relevant, and I think it's fascinating, is these two particular stones are the first stone and the last stone used on the priest's breastplate in the Old Testament. So John is directly connecting the imagery when he looks at God's throne to the priest, the high priest, and his breastplate and what he's wearing. He's the first and the last stone mentioned. Fascinating, isn't it? Also, these three stones are mentioned three times in Revelation chapter 21, which is at the end of the book when the new heaven, the new, the new earth, the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. We actually see these stones listed three times, except for the difference between when they're listed here and when they're listed there. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but these stones are red in color. But when they're referred to in Revelation 21, they're clear as white. The new city, the new Jerusalem coming down, and we see it is the church coming down. It's this new thing, a bride, beautiful, adorned for the bridegroom, Jesus. And at once they're red, covered in his blood, but then they're white and clear. Do you see the analogy? It is so beautiful when you start to put the pieces together. But John, at this moment, he's only laying a foundation of a, of a throne, And he says there's a green band of light, some sort of bow. This isn't the word for rainbow like you would see in Noah, though there may be a direct connect. We we aren't 100% sure. Scholars land at different places on this. But the whole idea is he's looking up and there's this profound Christmas tree of red and green before him. And notice, as we already read this, John doesn't dare describe the one seated on the throne. Why? Well, as we talked about last week, Paul tells us that that God sits in unapproachable light. No biblical author dare goes near even trying to put a description to him. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. And even the angels over and over and over again hide their face in the form of this massive power and glory and majesty and beauty. There's a reason why in the Old Testament God told the Israelites, have no graven image. Don't even attempt to make an image that would look like me. Don't use a cow. Don't use a human. Don't use a building. Don't use anything to try to represent me because all of those things, everything you could think of is created by me, which means it's way less than me. And even if you took all the images together to try to represent me, they couldn't even come close. And John gets that. So he's like, man, it's, it's red like these precious stones and there's this green beautiful band and it's just shining bright. He doesn't dare go beyond a simple comparison of light. We'll keep moving. Verse four, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones that seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So critical to get this. Nobody knows exactly who the 24 represent, but there are two fascinating things, and I think this is where I land, but I land here with a lot of grace, and if I find out I'm wrong in heaven, I'll be like, man, that was a good guess, though, wasn't it, God? That's as good as it's gonna get, all right? No one knows, just nobody knows. But two things. Number one, I think it's in ah, 2 Chronicles 24, maybe 1 Chronicles 24. David divides the, the priestly, these priestly leaders for massive worship service. He divides them into 24. 16 from one uh, family clan and eight from another. And the whole idea is these priests were to lead worship in heaven. And we see those 24 do that. That's secondary. We see later in in Revelation, I believe it's Revelation 21, maybe 22, uh, we see the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles and their names being written on the gates and on the foundations of the new Jerusalem. 
Again, the whole idea is if this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven represents the church, we are marked by those who came before us. The 12 elders, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 uh, apostles, they laid a foundation and we stand on that foundation. That's why we take the word of God here very, very, very seriously. They were given a responsibility to hand down to us who God is and what he's like and what he wants to do in the world through what we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. These are not just man-made concoctions. These are from God himself to tell us about himself. And these 24 elders, we see them doing different things, but the one thing they're always doing in the book is taking part in worship. When somebody cries out or says something, they all fall down and they do something. On their heads, they've got these crowns. Now, how many times have you heard somebody say, oh man, I just got a new jewel in my crown in heaven. What do they do with their crowns? Perhaps we should keep reading. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Number one, this would take us all the way back to week one in Exodus chapter 19. This is exactly what Sinai looked like when God met with Moses, and there's thunder and lightning and peals of thunder and all kinds of things. Whatever John saw, he's trying to make this connection to you that this one seated on the throne is that one who met Moses on a mountain but not only that, these seven spirits directly connect to, I did a podcast this week. We launched a podcast. If you haven't checked it out, go look for it. It's in your podcast store. You can also find it on our website. But I talked about Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah, Isaiah you could say it that way, I guess, if you're British. Isaiah, um, Isaiah tells us that uh, this, the Messiah, when he comes, he will have uh, the spirit of God. And the spirit of God will be upon him. And he lists six things. And then he'll... Seventh thing, live in the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold spirit, I believe, connects directly back to Isaiah chapter 11 because the number seven throughout the book of Revelation and really throughout the entire Bible stands for completion. It stands for completion. It's the complete thing. They marched around the city of Jericho seven times. We're told to forgive our brothers and sisters seven, not seven times 70, but seven times seven times 10. 490 years will be the proclamation from the prophecy to when Jesus would show up. It would be the perfect year of Jubilee. Every seven years, you give the land rest. There's seven days in a week. I could literally go on and on and on and on about the number seven throughout the Bible. The number seven literally stands for completion. It's the complete number of a thing. And partly what they're saying is, this spirit is the completeness of the spirit of God. And we know from Old Testament prophecy, it'll rest upon Jesus. And we'll get to that. Verse six, I'm going fast, I know. So if I lost you already, stick with me. There's some good stuff coming. In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And we need to camp here. See, in the ancient world, the most terrifying place is sea. Even the disciples who are professional fishermen end up on the sea when a massive storm comes up and begins to wreck their boat. Jesus is sleeping on the boat and the disciples go over and say, how can you sleep at a time like this? Don't you care if we die? And Jesus gets up and he says to the sea, be still. And I don't know if you've ever seen a storm toss the sea. My wife and I on our honeymoon, uh, we, were in, we were in Galveston and that's a whole other joke for another time, but we went to Galveston and they evacuated the other half of the island our first night of the honeymoon. They knocked on the door the next day, said, you probably should leave the island and wait and see what happens. And the sea, the ocean was terribly, terribly raging. Jesus gets up and he says, be still, and it all becomes calm instantly. And the point of this is 
in this ancient world, when people went out to sea, sometimes they didn't come home. Sometimes they died. But in heaven, before the throne of God, there is no more anxiety. There is no more fear. The unknown is not terrible. The sea doesn't claim any more lives because the one who is seated on the throne brings peace to the world. And the why is the big question? Because he's in control. And perhaps more than anything else I say today, that's what you need to know the most. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third a face like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. If you were here when we studied Ezekiel chapter one, all of this looks familiar to you, doesn't it? If you weren't, that's okay. You can go back and listen later. This is John, whatever he actually saw, he's drawing directly on Ezekiel chapter one. There's so much more to be said about this. The whole point though is these terrifying, powerful beings in heaven worship the one who is on the throne. We aren't gonna describe him much more than red and green light, but they worship him. And the other thing I think is relevant, notice that he had the face like a lion, like an ox, like a man, and like an eagle. Each of these four things represents so to speak, the king on earth of their particular field, the lion, the king of the jungle, the ox, the king of the field, the eagle, the king of the air, and the human, perhaps the ruler over them all. And yet, these things that stand before the throne of God, so we're representing creation, they worship him. Jesus says that if we don't open our mouths and worship, then even the rocks and the trees will cry out. In other words, all of creation knows who its creator is. All of creation knows who's seated on the throne, but there's one part of creation that rebels on a regular basis because we are so afraid to release control. We're so afraid to let God be God because we're so afraid what he might do with us if we let him. Will he handle it the way that I think he needs to handle it? And I wonder what would be different in our lives if we were to join the angels and the elders and the animals and all of heaven in worship. Look at chapter four, verse nine. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will, they will be created and have their being. Notice what these elders, whatever exactly they represent, they aren't trying to add jewels in their crown on earth. In heaven, their crowns are simply a thing to lay down before the Father because they realize Everything they have is nothing in light of him. Everything they have is only from him and for him and by him, everything. So they lay them down and worship to him. They put them on the ground and cry out to him to let them know that he is the only one worth worshiping. But that's a fascinating word, isn't it, worship? What does it actually mean to worship? Well, in our language, the word worship actually comes from an old word, worth. Ship, worship, to ascribe worth to something. But the power is not in our language, but in the original language. And the word worship literally means proskuneo, 
proskuneo. I got a C in Greek, all right? Anyway, the word means this. I go down on my knees to do obeisance to worship. Well, that cleared it up, didn't it? I had to then go look up what the word obeisance meant, and it blew my mind. You know, there are many ways that we do obeisance today. Like if you were to, um, and if I'm saying that word wrong, forgive me. But if you were to meet like a king or a queen and you were to bow your head, if you were to say to meet the Pope and kiss his ring, if you were to close out like a play and you were to come out and you know bow or curtsy or whatever ladies do, I don't know. They're all signs of honor and respect. But it's more powerful than that because we are in front of the king of all creation. A little bow, a kiss of the ring isn't appropriate. If that's what we do to human power and respect and honor, how much more so all of heaven? That's why I liked this one definition. Proskuneo is metaphorically described as kissing ground between believers, the bride, and Christ, the heavenly bridegroom. While this is true, the word suggests the willingness to make all necessary physical gestures of obeisance. In other words, when you come into the presence of Almighty God, I asked last week, what will you do? What will you do? Most of us went, I don't know. Will I stand in his presence? My knees, will I fall? Here's the appropriate response. And what they do is they take their crowns off. They don't even dare look up. They just start singing in awe and overwhelmed with the power and the beauty and the majesty and the might of the one who is seated on the throne. They realize in his presence, their best of their best is nothing. This is why it blows my mind. When I meet men and women, and some of you may be sitting here, and so please, this is not judgment, this is love. Please know that. But I meet men and women all the time who believe that they're good enough. Good enough that God will let them into his presence because of how good they are. And yet, the best of the best of the best in heaven, when they see him, they fall to their knees. They lose it. They can't hold up anymore. They crumble under the weight, and not just out of anxiety, not out of depression or shame or woe is me, I'm not worth anything, out of absolute adoration for the one who is on the throne. They recognize his power and his glory and his might and his majesty, and they take off their crowns, and they lay them down. They say, nothing, nothing ever has been worthy of that. And that's worship. Then we get into Revelation chapter five. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It's completely sealed. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John is caught up in the moment of worship, and he's beautiful, and he's awesome, and he's powerful, and all of heaven is worshiping him. And then a scroll appears. And by the way, the scroll is relevant throughout the book of Ezekiel and other books of the Bible that we don't have time to go into. But he's got this scroll, and nobody can even look inside it. Nobody can even peel it open, look. Nobody can read it. Nobody can obey it. The scroll represents the will of God. 
And John loses it. We've got to know what's in the scroll. We've got to know what is in there. We've got to know, but nobody can handle it. He feels like a man who's undone, like Isaiah did last week. Verse five, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Every single piece of this, and if I had more time I could walk through, but every single piece of this tells us we're talking about Jesus. You ever read The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe? It is no accident that C.S. Lewis picked the analogy of Aslan being a lion. And in fact, in the first, well, in The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe book, second book, I think, the lion is slain. Of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Again, in that podcast I did this week, I talked about the relevance of David. But he is worthy. See, even though the father is the one seated on the throne, if you want to call it seated, he's a ray of light. Can he sit? I don't know. Jesus shows up and he's the only one, the only one in all of heaven and all of earth, the only one worthy to do and fulfill the will of God. This is why you need him and this is why I need him. Because my greatest efforts on my best day aren't enough. But not only that, this lion, which is powerful, understands our story. See, he became worthy because he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In other words, the reason Jesus is worthy to open the scroll, the reason he's the one who can complete the will of God, the reason he could do it is because he never failed to be obedient to God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26 or 53, Jesus is, is being questioned about his trial and arrest, and he says, don't you think that I could literally call on the Father and he would send all of heaven's armies down here to help me in a moment? But he didn't. Why didn't he? Because he was being obedient to the Father even unto death. So who does Jesus fear the most? The Pharisees and the Sadducees who had him killed? Pontius Pilate, the ruler in Rome of his province, who gave the order? The soldiers who would beat him and whip and tear off his flesh and crucify him? Isaiah 11 told us he would fear the Lord. And out of his fear, he would obey. And out of his obedience, he would become worthy. And when he became worthy, Revelation chapter five, verse six, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. I love this. John looks up and he's finally elated because the lion of the tribe of Judah is there and he could take the scroll and fulfill the will of God. And I don't know if John looked away or if he blinked or if, or if Jesus turned around, but all of a sudden the lion is a lamb. Why a lamb? Because throughout the Old Testament, a lamb's blood was offered for the sacrifice of our sins. And Jesus wasn't just an animal. 
No, he was the perfect sacrifice. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And if you don't see that, then you aren't reading it right. And the reason that's important is because this lion is not one who wants to come and attack us. He's one who wants to love us. He's humble. Jesus literally says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The word humble here is the Greek word tapenos. It literally means properly, low, inner lowliness, describing the person who depends on the Lord rather than self. You know the difference between Jesus and us? Is he's content to let God be in control. But this is what he wants to bring to us. This desire to please the Lord and to trust him that all of his ways are good even when they don't make sense to us. This is for both believer and non-believer. If you're not experiencing the peace of God in your life, it's because you've not surrendered control in some area or another. It doesn't mean that things won't be anxious, that there won't be fear. It doesn't mean that there won't be even pain at times. It only means that if we want to become like Jesus in this world, we will trust that God is seated on his throne. So now what I want to do is I just want to read Revelation chapter 5. If you want to close your eyes, if you want to take a position of humility before the Lord, if you want to kneel, whatever it is you want to do, I just want you to take in these words. They're not on the screen. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures in the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Revelation 5.14. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Will I stand in your presence to my knees? Will I fall? 
I don't think I could stand. I think when we see the one seated on the throne and the lamb and the spirit of God, we will just worship. And that's what we want to do right now, is worship. But I don't want us to come into this moment unprepared. Guys, the bread and the juice represents the slain lamb. If there is business that you need to do with God, would you do it right now? Would you forsake and forget anything else outside of this moment that may be keeping you from worship of him? Your heavenly father loves you enough to send his one and only son to have a relationship with you. He loves you. In Revelation chapter three, verse 19, Jesus says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's relevant because I told you we'd get back to this. In Revelation chapter four, verse one, the verse we didn't read, John looks up and he says, and I see a door open. And these are the things that happen next. The door has been opened for all of us. Anybody who wants to come to Jesus, we will not find a lion waiting to attack us. We will find a lamb who is merciful, who understands your sin and temptation. He understands all the moments you failed. He understands every shame that you carry and he wants to take it from you upon himself and sit with you and eat with you and dine with you and be with you and love you. Will you let him? you let him. I said, if you're a believer, you take that bread and you take that juice and you eat and you drink and you do business with God. But if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, perhaps you've never been united with him in baptism, would you find one of our people wearing a Connect shirt and just come to them and say, I need to give my life to Jesus. Don't wait. He stands at the door and knocks. Will you open the door? As you bring your offerings and you lay down your crowns, there's boxes on the tables. He alone is worthy. Let's pray. Father, you are so beautiful. God, we thank you for your might and majesty. Meet us in this place, Father. Wash us in the blood of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, and send us out of here, God changed in your presence. In Jesus' name.